You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest today is Amy Gallo, who is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. Uh, She's author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict and co-host of the HBR Women at Work podcast. Her new book is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. Uh, Enjoy the pod. She's great. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Amy Gallo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. I actually want to begin our conversation by talking about one of the last chapters in your book. Mm. We've done a number of shows exploring ambiguity and complexity. Russ Roberts has a new book uh, confronting what he calls wild problems. Mm. And in each of those books, the authors end up talking about the importance of self-care, which is something you do in chapter 14. So in the world of business books, this feels new to me. I mean, welcome, but new, right? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, it having been in the business book world for right. some time, I feel like these conversations have been happening, but people outside the business world are always so surprised. They're like, business is talking about self care, you know? And I do, I do think it's, it's surprising because that's obvious, you know, the, the, sort of running theme of business and management advice for decades was work people as hard as you can extract as much labor as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is so that people have that perception is fair. Um, However, having worked at Harvard business review, having edited lots of articles, read lots of books, worked on books, this is a topic that is very top of mind for business leaders. And the last two years, it just drove that point home. I mean, it, it, and anyone who is not thinking about it in the business world is just, you know, not in the right 
place right now or just not paying attention, right? It's that you can't, you can't miss it right now, how important it is. I was thinking back to about when that started coming up in my world. And I think it was Jane Dutton's work around suffering at work, mm-hmm. and, which I, which was very important to me, both personal personal experiences, but this, this, this idea of, you know, if, if we want people to show up as their authentic selves, which we, we talk about, then we're going to get the good with the bad. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, Esther Perel talks about this too. And yeah. when she was very generous in giving a blurb for the book and said, you know, we all show up with emotional baggage at work. And the idea that we would, this idea that I can't, I still, it's so hard for me to conceive of. And I did start working at, at a time when this was still the thought, which is that we like show up at work and magically shed every yes. hang up issue, concern about our relationships, desire to connect with people like that just all disappears as if like it just falls off you when you walk into an office or in this case, you know, log onto a Zoom call. I I still can't believe we actually thought that was a possibility. Yeah, because the, the opposite, the opposite end of that spectrum would be true as well, which is, are you not going to get everyone's wild brilliance and their insatiable curiosity? I think you want all of that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, and also, I mean, you know, the book is about relationships, but the that's the thing that really, the idea that we would be able to do work without connecting with other humans, that we would right. be creative, productive, energetic, engaged, but we don't have to have relationships with our coworkers, right? Like that, again, blows my mind that that was, that was the way people thought for a very long time. So this is an interesting book in the sense that you, you go through these different archetypes, which we're certainly going to get to, but you do a lot of work in the introduction, and I want to unpack some of the things that are in, inside there. Sure. And you you talk about one study that found 94% of people reported working with a toxic person in the last five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, add me to that percentage. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually, 94 might be low, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah 94 yeah, might be yeah, low. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book, I talk about this in the introduction, is that I wrote a book about conflict five years ago. And it was less about personalities. It was more about the the process of conflict resolution. So where things mm. fall apart and how to, how to actually get them back on track. And anytime I talked about that book, I could almost count to 60 as soon as I was done, where someone would shoot up their hand and say, that all sounds good, but I have this one coworker. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was, it's that 94% of people who work with that one coworker, or maybe two, or maybe five, That's right. of people who just, they don't know how to deal with them. They seem to defy rationality. They de- seem to defy the advice that's out there. And that's really what drew me to this idea of, I want to help those people because I knew having worked at HBR, having been steeped in the management research, I knew there was research about how to deal with some of these personality types. And yet it did, hadn't really quite translated, I think, to the, um, you know, to common business advice. And so that's really what I wanted to do was take the research I know had been done about these unique situations and give people practical tools they can use in those situations. The other thing that you do, which is a very nuanced point that I appreciated, um, and I'll just quote you, quote, if you're serious about resolving conflict with a coworker, it's essential that you acknowledge your own part in the dynamic, end quote. So you you don't just let us off the hook that it, mm-hmm. any relationship is going to be more than one person. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, and, you know, the simple cliche is it takes two to tango, but it's, mm-hmm. it is more complex than that. And that, when I was working on 
the idea for the book, I have a friend who's a, a psychiatrist who actually teaches a course about love at NYU. And she was this, I would go these long walks and we would talk on the phone. And when she was thinking about writing a book, I was thinking about writing a book. And she, I was explaining what I was hoping to do with this book. And she said, your book is a Trojan horse. Hmm. Said, what, what do you mean? And she said, you're talking about, you know, you're attracting people who want to deal with the difficult coworker, but you're helping people realize they're often the difficult coworker. And I do try to do that in the book that we all play. Not, there's two things. I think we all play a role in the dynamic, right? It's not your, I mean, yes, there are people who absolutely drive us up a wall are probably being very inappropriate, doing harmful things in the workplace, probably deserve that toxic label. And yet we are not all our best selves all the time. So we display many of the behaviors that we find problematic in others. And it's we're also probably contributing to that dynamic yet as well. And I, I talked to someone yesterday who's dealing with an insecure manager and she, you know, she just wanted to know, how do I do this? How do I do this? And eventually we sort of unpacked that she was really her frustration with him was making him even more insecure. And you know, as much as I would love to say it's not your responsibility to compensate for his insecurity, there are ways in which it would absolutely turn things around if she changed her behavior rather than focusing on wanting him to change. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I've worked at Second City for over three decades, and the majority of that time was in a leadership role uh, and now more of a sport role. But like, I can honestly assess, hey, there was good at some stuff, and I was terrible at other things. And like, I, I wish I'd had the benefit of, of the knowledge I have from being slightly outside the circle to be mm-hmm. able to, to see, see where things are. But then that also makes me appreciate the fact that like, we are often both things that it just, you know, it, it's so context driven and, and, and situation driven and your environment at any given time. And certainly pressure doesn't always make us choose our best behaviors. And, and that, that idea, I think you talk about it quite a, bit in the book is this this pause that we should take at different times like you can really help yourself a lot if you just take that rest yeah yes well because our brains right our brains are meaning making machine well first of all they're they're designed to protect us so we sense a threat whether that's a snarky email or someone telling you i'm gonna get you fired right it doesn't it can be minor or it can be major our brain has the same reaction we go into protective mode and they're meaning-making machines. So we start to tell ourselves the story. So we protect ourselves. Then we tell us a story. Usually the story goes something like, I'm perfect. They're awful. <laughs> How do I fix them? Because yeah. I don't need to change at all. And then we get locked into that. And we ruminate and we fixate. And it's and then we set this dynamic. Then add into that confirmation bias, which is that you know Kelly behaved passive-aggressively in that meeting last week. Now everything he does seems passive-aggressive. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we just, it, our brains, really, you have to overcome your brain in order to get along or, or in order to improve your dynamics or interactions with, with these folks. So I have a, I have a, a person who I never worked with closely has also been at, at the theater uh, for a long time. And um, let's say I, I anchored myself and not thinking well of this human. Fair enough. And, and I, and I, and I did. And my boss, like, totally challenged me and she's like you're gonna do this for me because that that's you know and if it doesn't work out we'll we'll figure figure something else out and within like three four days of spending time this is like one of my closest allies at the theater right now and you know i'm i'm saying this as 
a man who's turning 56 in a couple of days. Like <laughs> I've had a long, like, and I should know better. And I generally get along with people. I, I don't like, I'm not uh, like, I'm, I'm good that way mostly, but mm-hmm. having seen that that was true, I'm like, Oh my God, I got anchored. And then I just assumed this behavior was about X, Y, Z and it completely, and, and this is actually a f- awesome human, like a yeah. great human. Yeah. So like just, I think everyone just has to own up to the fact they're probably doing this. Yes. It, it, and I would be shocked if they, I mean, I wrote a book about this and I yeah. do it. And you know, right? you do. Well, yeah. There's a reason you wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, and, and, and yet it, it is so hard in that moment to not see yeah. the other side, to, to not see how you're doing that. And, there's a concept I talk about this in chapter 11 of naive realism, which yeah. is the idea that you're seeing things completely clear, realistically. And if someone disagrees with you, they're, they're just clearly not seeing things. I mean, yeah. and the, I love there's a study in this area where, um, you know, the, they take pairs of people. There's someone who's going to tap out a, a regular, a, common song like happy birthday and someone's going to listen to the tapping and guess what song it is the person doing the tapping says oh they'll definitely know they'll de- it's something mm-hmm. like you know they guess that the other person will know it 56 percent of the time i'm going to get those numbers wrong but it's uh, around that and the actual correct guesses are like 2.5 percent because the listener just hears a random set of taps and so we think we're seeing things so clearly and so accurately and worse, often it's just completely off base. Uh, we, when we were getting ready to start the Second Science Project, which was a program we did at the University of Chicago, Nick Epley came and observed my wife Anne's um, one of her classes. Mm-hmm. And she had the, um, there was three actors and she had them do a gibberish exercise. And essentially two people are speaking gibberish and the person in the middle is translating to the other. And after they were done, Nick turns to her and goes, do you mind if I ask a couple questions? And then basically the question with them is, is, how much did you think you were understanding what the other person was saying? And they're right. like, yeah, like probably 75%. I think I got, you know, with, with their body language and all that. And then when he asked them what they were trying to intend to say, completely wrong. <laughs> and then he's like, there's research. We could do this as a research. And I'm like, it's the same, the same thing. Yeah. I mean, that is naive realism in practice, that's right? Like in, in, in an gym- improv class. That's right. That's right. I'm sure that there's so many social social psychology studies you could recreate oh, in yeah. an improv class. I'm sure. Well, that's that's why we did that. I mean, that, that was the whole thing. It was, it was like a duck to water with this stuff because it's like, you're just, well, just the whole idea of yes and is a nudge. Yes, <laughs> that's know? right. That's right. The idea that we, are, we say no and we, you know, and I know and I, there's a lot of, uh, uh, upset out there about nudges like right now and replication yes. and that sort of thing, which is, it's interesting. I'm curious about that. Where, where, where do you fall with, with that conversation? Cause it feels to me not that there's no like one right answer here. There's not, it's right. I mean, Oh gosh. I don't, do I want to wade into the conversation about social science? I almost <laughs> didn't ask the question. I almost didn't ask the question. I, I mean, it's, Oh, I, I can I I uh, no comment is that fair? I mean it's it's mm-hmm. in, well and of course I say no comment I'm going to keep going but the <laughs> the yes and um the, the I I do feel like you can you can social science can be tricky in that you can make you can prove things that someone else can't prove you yep. can the, the generalizability is really tricky and. Yep. There are, I mean, I think there's, I'm not going to name names, but there are other scientists who've done, social scientists who've done research that people have then said, there's no way 
that that works. They can't replicate it in studies, et cetera. And yet it's become part of They've been on the podcast. That's right. And so, and I feel like, Oh, it's just but tough. Then, but then, there, there, is there value there? I mean, this. So, so where I, I come down to this in a couple of different ways, and and I'm I get I get involved in academic Twitter for whatever it's worth. Um, I love academic I, Twitter. I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's fun. I, yeah, it all depends. But yeah. you know, it's so opinion based, right? So you, you also have to rely on the fact that your your the data you're getting is generally like, and, and there's never any way I think anyone's ever going to be 100 percent sure. And then. Again, context-driven, right? Something a little bit changes. And, but this is science. Science yeah. is just getting it wrong over and over That's and over right. again to try to get as close to us to getting it right. That's and right. I think Bob Sutton and I were going back and forth on this on academic Twitter, which yeah. is one of the shame. Like, there's all these people talking about, like, brainstorming doesn't work. And we've proven this yes. because of studies with a bunch of strangers coming together. I'm like, I, I know why it hasn't happened. But if you studied a second city ensemble of six people who were together for two years, improvising every single night together and, and creating, you're going to figure out that group creation is a thing. That's right. That's and, right. and it's just, but you know, the, the, it's not compelling data of six. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that's, and we do, I mean, and, and the nudges, right. I, I can tell you there's lots of people who are finding useful uses of nudges and yet yeah. I, so it it's really tough to, and I think about this. There's interesting research about venting too, which is re- very relevant oh. to the book, right? Of like, about so venting. The the common belief mm-hmm. is venting's great because you get things off your chest, and yep. um, and you sort of, and I've actually talk about venting quite a bit in my first book, saying it's a great thing to do before you go into conflict. You should talk to someone. You should vent. Personally, I find it useful, but there's new research showing that venting actually cements the dynamic or makes you feel worse oh. because the person you're typically venting to is like, yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. So rather than changing your perspective on what you're venting about, so let's take, you know, a negative relationship with a coworker. I come to you to complain about my coworker. You tell me like, oh my God, you're right. They're so unreasonable. It just makes it that much more difficult for me to change and to to see the, the situation differently. So do I still think venting is a good idea? sometimes but then now we're talking about well it depends who like who you vent to what it and my advice these days is really is your venting focused on solving a problem on proving you're right well i think where that fits in the lexicon of your book and i think it's just true largely is put it in your toolbox mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's the first tool you have to pick up yeah yeah and that's what that's what the, and, and you 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 hammer at home throughout the book and i really appreciate that because it's it, it is you have to have a variety of uh, tools to manage your day, mm-hmm. period. Um, yeah. So let's talk about some of the archetypes. And sure. um, the, the insecure boss is, is the first one that we meet. And I explain how um, one imagining themselves as a cute little squirrel would help with an insecure <laughs> boss. So that's Lindy, that's Lindy Greer at University yep. of Michigan. Such a great piece of advice. So one of the things about insecure managers is, you know, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation I was having with someone yesterday about their insecure manager, we're often triggering their insecurity unknowingly, mm. either by, um, you know, by pointing out things they're getting wrong, uh, by looking more competent than them. And we sometimes think, oh, I have to compensate for their in- their incompetence. So I'm going to just do a great job. That just makes them look worse. They feel worse. Then they start to retaliate. They take out all that, you know, they micromanage. They do all the things that that insecure managers do. 
And the um the the problem is that we end up feel coming off as threatening to them. So Lindy's mm-hmm. advice is how do you actually really get in the the frame of mind of I'm not a threat to you. I'm I'm n- really a cute, just a cute little squirrel. And she says she's it's a tactic she got from her own leadership coach that she used with someone who was really having a, a problem with her. And she said when she went into the meetings thinking I'm a cute little squirrel somehow without even really changing her behavior, she just came off as less threatening. And, you know, do I love that people have to imagine themselves as cute little squirrels? No, I think it's sort of annoying, especially, I mean, if you think about the gender dynamics of that as well, complicated, right? I don't love to have to give that advice, but if you're trying to get someone whose ego is really, um, you know, is very ego defensive, if you're trying to get them to calm down, imagining yourself as a cute little squirrel, seems to work. I love it. What, is is it the, is it the insecure boss who is te- would, would be like withholding information or is that one of the other yeah. Well, lots of the lots unfortunately of, okay. lots of the archetypes. That's a that's a nice tactic for any difficult coworker to use. Excellent. But in, insecure manager definitely because they're they're trying to be in control oftentimes. Yeah. So that's often how they execute on their insecurity is that I can be in control. So I'm not going to tell you when the meeting is or I'm not going to tell you what the senior leadership team said because I need to feel valuable. But the political operator also certainly does that. Um, the tormentor, the person who you think is going to be your mentor, but actually makes your life miserable, they might do that as well. It's, mm-hmm. you know, information is power. So people, people will use that to carry out some of their negative behavior. Uh, and when you were, you just mentioned the tormentor, and I thought this was really interesting because you note a Kellogg and Morton study, and I'll quote from it, quote, it's often harder to empathize with someone who's in a tough situation that you've been in before. End yeah. quote, which seems odd since you would assume someone would have greater empathy if if that were the case. But yes, it, it can like rebound the other way, I guess. Exactly, and this this was really interesting. I was fascinated when I read this um, HBR article. I actually didn't read the paper, but I've read the the article based on it. And the theory is that because you've been, let's take a divorce for example, because you've been through it and you got through it. You're like, well, why can't someone else do that? Like, I, it all worked out fine for me. So you sort of lose out in some of that empathy. Also, there's a little bit of, they don't, use, the authors don't use this, but it, it's my word, but amnesia, right? In the moment, it seems so hard. But once you're past it, you're like, oh, I guess that wasn't too bad. Um, and so when you see someone else going through the same thing, you're a little bit like, buck up. And that's, that's the tormentor. That's the sort of, classic behavior of the tormentor is i sacrificed you should too and yeah yeah you also bring up this interesting idea which i see play out all the time around generational envy mm-hmm. that right. that feels like that's another book yes quite frankly and it's probably too early to write it yeah that's right because <laughs> you have all these different generations for the first time in the, in the workplace and, and believe me I, I work in a place where there's you know 18 year olds to 60 year olds. Right. And the amount of talking past each other that, that goes on. And there was an interesting, I forget which book this was in recently, but pointed out the idea that just defining what makes individuals happy is generationally different. So mm-hmm. y- you, you, if you ask me what makes me happy, it's going to be sitting reading in my garden. Mm-hmm. If you had asked 25 year old Kelly, it would have been going to a Grateful Dead concert. That's right. That's right. And, and that's, but that's the thing. That's what drives me a little 
okay, this is what's very frustrating about the generation conversation is because we have all of these tropes about millennials and Gen Zers and Gen Xers and, mm-hmm. and we think they're so true. Right. And, and, and yet what, it's not about the generation you're from. It's about the age you are. So like you said, you, you might be a Gen Xer who cares more about financial security right now, just to play into the trope. Right. But you, as a 25 year old, when you were a Gen Zer, you also cared about challenging the patriarchy, right? Like it's, it's, it it is just, it's about an age difference. And there's, there's a Peter Capelli at, at Wharton has written a lot about this, studied this and, and says there's the actual differences between the generations in terms of values is pretty minor. It's really about age difference, not the gener, the time in which you grew up. Yeah. And what you started with in terms of that generation. So being a big difference for me is technology, right? And I'm I'm constantly the butt of the joke at second city because I can't do anything technologically speaking. Yep. Yep. But, yep. but I know what wine to order. And yes. they don't. <laughs> there you go. So, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. That's right. Uh, talk to us about the victim boss. What is it? What, what goes on with the victim boss? So the victim, so the victim archetype is, can be a boss. It can be a peer. It can be a direct report. Um, this is, I call it a flavor of the pessimist, which is the chapter before, which is that it's someone who thinks everything is going to go wrong, but the victim has an a added benefit, which is, or added feature, I should say, which is they think everything's going to go wrong to them. And really with all the archetypes there, you have to, you know, there's some caution because there's some folks who truly are victims. They are the subject of mistreatment, Mm -hmm. of bias, of gaslighting. So when someone starts saying, this is all happening to me, you have to pay really careful attention that Maybe that actually is true. But for some people, and we know this from psychological research, some people do have a mentality that they are the subject of every negative thing that happens. And it can be incredibly frustrating because they have no agency. So you can imagine when you're trying to get something done in a workplace, the victim has no, no motivation to actually get anything done. And so trying to get them out of that mentality and actually collaborate, be creative, you know, they're just so stuck. It can be really, really frustrating. Yeah, I like that you're in, in part of you offer solution sets in, in each of these chapters. And one of the, the ideas with the victim uh, is to turn their focus to helping others. Mm-hmm. And that's that there's so much that gratitude research. But I know that that is very much work for me is that if I'm feeling down and I just take a moment to try to help someone, it's like, oh, that's that's. That's almost like taking an aspirin. That's right. It is, and it's, and I do think the victim, if you really, cause they're, they're so self-focused, there's everything comes back to them and what they're experiencing. So if you just even break that self-focus for a moment, the re- gratitude research, the helping others research, the, the time, giving time away. So people who feel really mm-hmm. busy, if they actually use some of their time to, for others, they end up feeling like they have more time. Um, right. So if you get them focused, the victim on, an outward focus. They're not only getting all those benefits we know from research, but you're breaking the self-focus cycle, which is part of what's really holds them back and what makes it them so vexing to work with. Um, all right. There was an item in here that kind of blew me away and it's in the chapter about the passive aggressive peer. And it's basically where the, that term came from, I mm. mean, but that must, did you stumble upon that? Or like totally stumbled upon it. Talk so to us about it. yeah, 
So passive aggressive was the first archetype I started working on with with Mm. the book. And it's the question I get asked the most often. How do I deal with someone who's passive aggressive? And I think it's so challenging because it feels like shadow boxing, right? Your you your attempts to I I'm someone who tends to be very direct, like, hey, what's going on with us? Like, let's talk it through. With passive aggressive, they're like, nothing. I'm fine. There's no, nothing wrong. Right. So it can be, you're like, where do I latch on to? So I was really excited to dig into the research and, and the, 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 you know, data point that you're talking about is that the term started in the military, the U S military to define in the twenties to, or was it even the 10s? 40s? 40s. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, to describe a off a soldier who was non-compliant, who would say yes to a, an officer, but then actually wouldn't follow through. Mm-hmm. And it quickly became a, di- you know, a psychological or psychiatric diagnosis. Then it was taken out of the DSM. But we all know that behavior of they seemingly comply or they seemingly collaborate or they seemingly smile, but we know something else is happening underneath because their actions reflect their true thoughts and feelings, which they're unwilling, unable, you know, to say. I, yeah, I don't even know what bucket to put that in with regard to there's so much at play there in terms of <clears throat> that the military <clears throat> would use that as, as, as its term is kind of funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets adopted by you know, sort of a medical diagnosis. And it reminds me, my wife was doing research around um uh, uh, uh ter- term different terms throughout the years for uh, uh, mental health mm. issues, and uh, and essentially what would happen is once a uh, a word would be used medically, it turned into a slur mm. over and over and over that's again. Interesting, interesting, right? yeah. And so you're just like, oh, well, that's even darker in some regards, right? When you think about that. Yeah. Well, and I think about, I mean, I caught myself just a few minutes ago about to say what drives me crazy. And I'm really trying to watch the language I use around mental health because I, and, and it's, it's, it's challenging for all of us to think about how these terms have evolved and, and wanting to make sure we're choosing words that, that don't, um, you know, upset people that are, aren't damaging to folks. And, and it is, that's the, I'm actually glad you're bringing this up because that's one of the things I have mixed feelings about. I'm about to publish this book with, with, with all of it in there, but I still have mixed feelings about the labels because I do think like all of these could be used as pejorative labels to put someone in a corner and say, I'm like, I'm not dealing with you. Yeah. I have no interest in interacting with you and can also be used to label someone who's really struggling who actually has real needs that are being unmet in the workplace, whether because of mental health issues or because of bias against their, um, you know, gender or race, right? There's, so I, the archetypes I really hope are really meant to make sure you can get the tools you need to deal with the specific type of behavior you're dealing with. But I really caution it throughout the book, do not use these as a way to just put someone down, dismiss them, decide you don't have to deal with them at all. Yeah. And I mean, I think you, you go at great p- pains to say no one is usually one of these at any given time. There are many of these. So it's, yeah. it's all that. And that's interesting because I wanted to talk about the biased coworker because it, 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 that, that to me is also such a tricky area because, and I, and I have been in a room with experienced medical doctors who said all bias is bad. 
And I have had to explain to them that bias is neither bad nor good. And I don't, how were you not trained in this? Yeah. Yeah. Because it is evolutionary, neurologically, we're, we're, we're built this way. So, so, so I, I mean, that means many things to me, which means that we have a lot of hard work ahead of us. Yes. Uh, and we do not need to constantly be beating ourselves up unless we're choosing not to do the work, unless we're choosing not to do, take the upgrade, right. which I don't know why you would do that. Yeah. I don't know why you would either, but that's, and that's right. I mean, all bias is bad. It's like, oh, okay. It's a little bit like saying breathing is bad. <laughs> you know, it's right, right, right. Right? like, yeah. we just, we just all, we all have it. It's our brain taking shortcuts. Yeah, but you might stop doing it and then you're dead. So it's bad. <laughs> right? there you go. There you go. Um, yeah. I mean, I, and I think the, the, the acceptance that we're all biased is an important part of it and yet not accept it. like it's a tricky because i get what he's where he's going is like you don't want to normalize it to the point that we're like okay we're all biased let's just carry on because it's not just about human behavior we also have laid laid you know like laid on top of that white supremacy and yep. the patriarchy Systemic and racism and yeah environmental these food deserts i mean there's like name it Exactly. So you yeah. po- you have bias plus all of these ways in which bias is built into our systems. Yeah. And so I get why someone would say bias is bad when you think about the ways in which it's it is carried out. And yet we all to to just decide that someone who's done something biased is not of value to you any longer. No, or- because I, like I think my fear, my I think my fear of uh, like my kid not getting hit by a car is very healthy. That's correct. So that's correct. Right. And that, that is a, that's a bias, right? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. And so, um, yeah. And, and, and I, I, there's a, that's, that was the chapter that was the, the trickiest to write in some ways, because I do think both, I want to give people tools to address bias when they experience it in the workplace. And I also want to acknowledge it's not their job to yeah. educate a biased coworker or to fight these you know this these systemic problems and it's it's a fine line to to you know draw but between what what do you actually want to do and and making sure people don't feel burdened to do it yeah it's it's one of the tricky and again as a as a, a white cis male of a certain age like like I'm the last person who needs to be educating any, anyone on bias however um, my my silence would also be telling. So, well, and actually, the research shows you're the best person to do it right. because because people actually you don't have a you know you don't have a pony in the race, so people are re- willing to say, oh, okay, maybe no, I, I own a look- bunch of ponies. Someone just gave me a bunch of ponies. <laughs> this is the fact. <laughs> oh, for your birthday, I hope. Because oh yeah, no, that's when. Yeah. Scad. I don't know what a group of ponies is called. Scad. <laughs> I'm going with scad. I like it. I like scad. Yes. Uh, um, in a mo- Go ahead. I was I was just going to just finish the thought is that 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 chapter I also I hope people who aren't the subject of bias at workplace on a regular basis do read that chapter because there's lots of tools in there for how to interrupt bias even if you're not the the object of it and that's my hope with that chapter is that there will be people who stand up and speak out about this bias to help those who are the target of it and are powerless to to actually do something about it. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but before okay. we do that, you've got um, nine principles for getting along with anyone, which comes at, at the end of the book. Um, and the, the one I, I wrote down a few of these, and one of them I really liked was, quote, focus on what you can control, end quote. Mm-hmm. 
That's a biggie. Yes, biggie. And that's, you know, I have, there have been many times I have sat across from a coworker and actually visualized my hand going into their brain, rewiring things and thinking, I'm making you a better person, right? But unfortunately, that is not reality. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is a fantasy. Also, I've also fantasized about slipping a, a prescription for therapy to some coworkers, right? Of just like, could you please? Just work some of this out and then we can have a conversation. Um, but real, the reality is you can control your thoughts, your reactions, the way you behave. And ultimately, whatever tactics you use in the book, and I hope, you know, they're meant to be a menu of things you can try and experiment with, whichever you choose to use, I want you to feel like you've lived according to your values and not trying to change another person is one of those values, at least for me, which is not only because it's not a nice thing to do, but also it's just not possible. No. And I think you're, you, I think you'll be endless, endlessly surprised when you get people to a place of more self-disclosure, because they're naturally not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel reluctant that you're going to make discoveries and understandings that are going to be like, oh, that's why you do what you do. That's right. That explains that snarky email. That yeah. ex- that explains the rolling your eyes that you do. That explains the hoarding of information. And we do, and you're, again, you're not going to force them to stop that by just saying, stop being passive aggressive, stop being, playing the victim, right? That's not how it's going to happen. You're going to, it's much more nuanced um, than that. And a lot of it is about being the adult in the room and controlling your own reaction and your own behavior. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting that we're still talking about self regulation when when that what I remember when we first were talking about working with the folks at the University of Chicago, um, we were going to focus our work in sort of children communities or young people communities, and we we're talking about this idea of self regulation. And I didn't realize that when that got shifted to the business school, that we'd be doing executive education classes and talking about self regulation. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, wait a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were we already taught this like in kindergarten? And then you realize, oh, no, that we need a refresher on the things we l- should have learned in kindergarten. Right. That's right. I, I mean, it's I, I see this with my daughter, who's now 15 and talk about emotional regulation. With that. That's a whole other topic. But she, you know, as a young person, she was so emotionally intelligent. And it mm-hmm. just made me convince it made me convinced that we're born that way. We're born with all of these emotional intelligence skills we have them hammered out of us as we grow up, mostly through school and our parents and society. And then in our 20s, we walk into a bookstore and go, oh, a book on emotional intelligence. This is something I should learn. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's in us all along. And yet it's so, so hard to do. So yeah. hard to do. Uh, do you have a yes and story for us? I do. I actually have many, but I, I, I'm going to tell start you one. Yeah, start with one. And the other one's not about me. Maybe I, it's, it's a story I tell in the book about my daughter. We can decide whether to get to it, but let me tell you the story. The, the, I actually thought of this because, um, I spend in the summer, I spend a lot of time in Provincetown. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where my mom lives and I grew up coming here as a kid. And there were, it was right before the pandemic. So I think it was the summer of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, bunch of my friends out here and I wanted to go into town to see a drag show. Mm-hmm. And there were six of us and it was 
incredibly hard to align. I mean, as any adult knows, like aligning six adult schedules was, you know, so it was a feat that we found a time. We're going to go out to dinner. We're going to go see this drag show. We get, and we decide we're all going in one car. So we're, we're pile into, I'm, I'm the designated driver. I'm for driving into town. And for the, anyone who knows Provincetown, you come in on one highway. There's just one way into town. And then you take these side streets to the main street. And we pull up to this light. And there's a car on the side of the road in a place that's clearly something's not right. Like it's not a place where you would park a car. And in my head, I'm like, don't get involved. I don't want to even know what's going on in that car. We're, we got, we got our dinner reservation. We got our tickets to the show. We can't. And I look over, we all look over and there's a clown in the driver's seat. And, and my friend, Amy, whose name is also Amy, who's in the passenger seat, turns to me, she goes, you can't leave us clown on the side of the road. And I was like, you can't. It's true. So she rolls down her window. Sir, you know, do you need help? And he says, I ran out of gas. I'm trying to get to my show. And we're like, we'll help you. And so we get, this is the best part. We're already six women in this tiny oh, yeah. Prius. No, I saw where this is going. Yes. And he gets in and we're now become a literal clown car. Uh-huh. And we drive. And we, so we sell, and he's, he's young. He, you know, maybe early twenties. It turns out actually he was, because uh, this small town out here, he actually was my mom's waitress when she went out to dinner the night before, mm-hmm. or he was his wait, or, or um, server at this uh, uh, restaurant where she had gone the night before, which we pieced together later. But we get him and he says, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know what to do when you run out of gas. And we're like, oh, we've run out of gas many times in our lives. We'll take yeah. you to the gas station. You'll buy a container. So we go to the gas station. We he's we he goes in with our friend, my friend Steph, and fills up his his he's filling up his um container with gas at the pump and next to us as we're parked there's a car with this little dog that's yapping yapping and the woman had gone into the to the gas station store to get something and we're just looking at this dog so cute this like tiny little chihuahua and she comes out and says um you know she comes out gets in her car and we say oh we love your dog and she says i love your clown (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, we have a clown. This is the best night ever. Yeah. We were late for our reservation. We were late for the show, but it was just, it was a, a perfect night and it ended up. That story. Exactly. And, and it was one of those moments where I tend to be someone who's pretty rigid. Like we got plans, we got to stick to them. But, you know, as my friend Amy said, you can't leave a clown on the side of the road. I absolutely love that. The book is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. Amy Gallo, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Kelly. I've really enjoyed this. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.